0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Greetings, my fellow Belizeans. Uh, on this our seventh show, um, I'm very excited because I have a wonderful guest that I will be bringing on, that I will be uh, that will be joining me in a minute. But before I get to that, I just want to say uh, I hope everyone is in good health, good strength, and um, you know everyone is feeling good this morning. Um, We have to really take an inward look and decide where we want to go as a nation in the country of Belize. We really do. Um, We hear a lot about corruption and about uh, what it's doing to a country. But corruption is not the most significant thing that's happening to that country. That's only... A part of the overall picture of what's happening with our country called Belize. Um, you know, we have, you know, both sides only pay lip service to efficient government, and you know, corruption being what it is, there's really no UDP or PUP way to handle the corruption. You know, it's 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 unfair to suggest that um that you know that um that uh, you have this, you know, that it has to be partisan. And I, I reference the integrity, the integrity commission. This has been a moribund body for, I think, quite some time now. And um, if, you know, if we are really serious about corruption, graft, and other serious misdeeds, such such a body would have the power to enforce the laws against any public official, elected or otherwise, from either party. From once they see the, you know, once they've seen, you know, conduct on becoming. We're not, you know, the society not comfortable with it, this body would have the, the statutory power without interference to go and say, you know what, we have, you know, you know, we can investigate and if needs be, bring these people, hold these people accountable, you know, ethics in public life. The truth be told, the more these two parties continue to govern, you, you, you do realize that um, they're very much alike. And, you know, yes, I know people say, well, no, you know, you don't, you know, Pipersburg, you, you know, you know, you have to understand, you know, that this is the system we have and, you know, the third part is this and third part is that. This has nothing to do with third parties, you know, this or that, as, you know, people want to say. The reality is, the core reality is this, that, you know, the PUP and UDP pretty much are morphing to each other, and that's a fact. I know this might be painful for some listeners and some partisan people, but that's a fact. They need each other. They depend on each other. They're supplement... You know, like in... I think in geometry, there's a thing called supplementary and complementary angles. They're like supplement and complement of each other. You know? So, we can continue to chase our tails. You know, we can continue to split differences between them. It would only make us more divided as a people and increase our cognitive dissonance, you know, because one thing is clear. They both agree on the premise of the governance and jurisprudence of the current system and they have no intention of ever seriously reforming it or educating them, educating you know the public you know as to what it what needs to be done uh, you know so we have to look at it and you know we have to really look at it and see where we are as a country um, one of the main reasons why you know one of the main reasons why there's a failure of institutional permanence on change really is because, you know, the parties, PUP and UDP have effectively managed to divide the poor working class majorities along lines that had nothing to do with politics. You know. And, you know, have nothing to do I'm sorry, nothing to do with the policies, you know, followed by either party or how these how these parties affected their interests, you know. You know, And for the most part, the people are engaged with individual survival. So they have every reason to want to maintain the economic order and political order because for them, that's the only way they know. That's the only thing they have been bred to believe. So for them, it's like, it's either we do this particular thing, so they're comfortable with it. And anything else that you bring in to to make them think otherwise or make them look at it from a critical standpoint, it's like, it's trouble for their minds. Like, oh, my God, don't let me think about that. Oh, my God, I just want to just... I'm happy with the way it is because this is all I know. You know. So, um, look. One of the things that I try to do on this show is to be honest, sincere, and get to the point without anybody can accuse me that I'm trying to be partisan. Because I'm not. Because if you're really serious about the national development of belief, you have to be honest sincere and look at it from a standpoint that, look, these are the issues, these are the problems and you're not going to you know, you're not going to you know, mince words or try to you know, there are no sacred calls like my good friend Parker Smith, I like to say. You have to be brutally honest about you know, what ails our country and what are some of the things that we see wrong and how we can fix it because if you just stay within the narrow trajectory of uh, PUP, UDP, you're wasting your time. I have news for you you're wasting your time. Because these two entities have no interest in reforming the system because they benefit from it. So why on earth would they want to do anything to reform it? You know, to, why would they want to cut their power? They do, they'll nibble around the periphery and do a little amendment here or there, but they're not going to do anything serious. You, are you Without serious pressure coming down from we, the people, Um, look, we have to under, the, under our present system. Even if we, I've see, I saw where they were talking about the Senate and all that thing. You know, even if we, uh, if, in, 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 even if we look at the, the powers of the Senate, I don't think any party in power is likely to welcome public expressed disagreement from within its own ranks. Particularly since there is this rabid and bitter polarization along petty partisan lines. Just whatever policy and issue they are fearful of so if you were on one side, you were fearful of giving ammunition to the enemy, that's how they view it, so you know so when you look at and and, and also this so called concept of collective responsibility of cabinet, which implies that each member of the cabinet is responsible for all decisions of cabinet and for all acts of each individual member, so basically they they you know they will cover for each other, you know. So this means that no minister can oppose a government measure in the House. Neither should he publicly public criticize any government or policy or indeed any official act of another minister. That's why you see a mum of the very mum when it comes to, you know, to Penner and other ministers that have committed atro- um, discrepancies and conduct on the you against know, violating the public trust. Because you know, this is the way. That it's like an old boys network girl kind of like they 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 hang together because to to criticize one essentially is to criticize all and this this is you know this is the, this is where we are as a people and the system that we have so yes the, the teachers can march yes we can agitate but unless we look at the basic underpinnings of our system we're not going to be able to do anything about it and like I heard you know, like what's your favorite saying you're changing what's a thing, You know, changing monkey, you know the for block you know you know you know you know the saying, you know that's what we're gonna be doing so so again, if a minister feels so strongly against any particular policy in the house, the only recourse he has is to resign, like what uh, Mr spa did her spa did you know, just resign and discuss, you know so. In effect, the system we ha- that we have makes the House a mere rubber stamp for the cabinet decisions of the government in power. It, it, present day, uh, this government is, the present government is not effectively directed by the cabinet. And the same holds true for previous governments. I am, I am disinclined to believe that any of these parties have the necessary political maturity to organize any party education, encouraging any of its backbenchers that's in there to voice their dissent. So, essentially, you have democracy without the needed participation of the people. You know, so, I mean, we, you know, we, and I'm just taking my time to try to be very patient. And I'm trying to be involved in popular education here. We need to understand what's really happening in our country. So nobody wants to tell you the truth. Everybody will tell you, oh, well, they will give you a PUP perspective or UDP perspective. No, you need a perspective that's honest, sincere, and cut right down to the middle without taking any sides. Then you can decide how you want to move from there. And that's what I'm trying to do. So again, so except in a formal sense, the National Assembly does not make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Belize as the Constitution requires perhaps its most useful function is to serve as a public forum for which the parties can disseminate their propaganda no doubt we have all seen the debates in the house vitriolic finger pointing and blame shifting and you know it's disrespectful that you know that these people who you elect would behave like that in front of you know in front of the public you've seen it on tv you know what i'm talking about you've seen these debates so i mean in, you know the in the, these debates basically all they serve is to you know uh, you know it's cursory at best i think, and you know because it's limited by the by, by the fact that they cannot affect the, the situation, whatever law the regime in power proposes passes at will, and that's a fact so if so in in essence this opposition basically has no you know no say just you know aside from you know, reeling railing up As it were. So, other recurring system, the House of Representatives really is is maligned and perfunctory. The cabinet is front and center. The House is only important only as a mechanism through which the cabinet is formed and by which it legislates. So, basically, we have what is called, I mean, in the Caribbean, some scholars call it cabinet government, you know, by some detractors anyway. I mean, so although there are certain features of the so-called cabinet government in our constitution, if you look at the Belize constitution, much of, it, which, which, most of its practices are based on the British system, which was developed by convention of the two-party system. Hence, within the cabinet, the prime minister, that's what we need to understand, the prime minister is powerful with almost demagogue status. And again, leading scholars like to call it, well, you know, it's not really cabinet government, but prime ministerial government, because, you know, whatever he says essentially you know goals i am you know i'm of the i'm of the inclination again that you know um and i've looked at this very carefully Uh, you know the convention is that the cabinet decisions are never taken by vote only by consensus and who says the consensus hello the prime minister so this prime minister, any prime minister that gets in our know, current system, exercises an almost de facto authority over all public officers, civil servants, and whatever ministry they may work in, along with the power to appoint, discipline, and remove the, the, the more senior members, including the police and the military. The prime minister alone decides what measures the government should be uh, put to the House of Representatives. As a result, many of those individuals dedicated to the highest level of public service so, you know, or public servants, they have become cynical. And they're only stuck in a reality of survival. Thus, all the assumptions and deficiencies continue without serious challenges. The all-powerful prime minister rules with impunity in our system. So for me, here's what I'm saying. The Constitution is front and center of what is fundamentally wrong with our foundation of, uh, you know, as a fledgling state. As a people, we never wrote and composed a Constitution and emerged out of our own struggle, History and political evolution; hence, this carbon copy document that we that was grafted upon, that was grafted upon us by our former colonial masses is not an authentic representation of who we aspire to become as a people. You simply cannot build a house on a faulty foundation. I'm sorry. Consider this: when it became time to consult the people about the new constitution in 1981. It was a foregone conclusion that it would follow the pattern established by our colonial masters and most of their former colonies in the Caribbean and around the world. Thus, this modern constitution of Greece, including the independence constitution, were muddled after the provisions of other Commonwealth countries. All it required was the approval of the British government. It effectively excluded the general participation of the people. So thus, this this document is nothing more than a carbon copy. Yet and still, we continue to proceed in forging a nation without a genuine funding document written by the people for the people. We continue to scrabble over the scraps from the, our neocolonialist table in the form of top-down amendments here and there. And we forget our oh, God-given right to something more. In the interim, we forego all of God. We forego all our, all, our, our means to participate and really bring serious changes to the system. It is painful of us, to me that we are bedeviled by a cleverly written document that was meant to keep us in the vestiges of absentee shareholders and predators who can come in and manipulate the system any time they want. And that's what's happening in Belize today. My contemporaries, I'm telling you, I believe that we need a paradigm shift in our school of thought. Dr. Ivan Van Sertima, the late Dr. Herman Sertiman, who is a noted anthropologist from out of Guyana, argued that our imagination was captured by this colonial, colonialism, you know, thereby making it impossible for us to think outside of the narrow vernacular of the two-party See, system that has divided us along partisan political lines. If we truly seek real structural reforms that are in the national interest of our country, we must challenge the validity of the status quo. Hence, all the sweeping legislative changes, true constitutional separation of powers, legislative implementation, zero corruption, that many have called for, is not possible without drastic changes or a radical revamping of our Constitution. That's a fact. If we rely on the premise that this is the Constitution, the Supreme Law of the land, then those changes will never be realized with this current document that has so many faults and shortcomings. Our folks. That's the way it is. So we can agitate. We can scream and shout. Unless we look at the basic underpinnings of our system, we will forever be chasing our tails and be, like my friend Parker liked to say, you know, the lesson of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Now, my guest today, I'm very excited, you know, my guest today is... uh, Mr. Glenn Tillett and this gentleman here is no stranger to um, you know, he's no stranger to, uh, to, to, be, to the Belize Body Politics. He's one of the, in fact, I would say Glenn is arguably one of the few gentlemen who understand the psyche and the political implications of Belize's Body Politics and how it, you know, and, and how it affects the overall system that we are in. I mean, he has a unique commanding understanding of that. I'll give Glenn that because, you know, he, is, you know, he has been an um, activist in Belize for decades. He's a journalist. He's also the editor for um, the independent newspaper. So, you know, I'm very excited that he's, you know, he has agreed to take time out of his busy schedule to join us again to involve us in the popular education of how our system, of our governance and jurisprudence. So, good morning, Glenn. You there?
2: Good morning, Hubert. I don't know if you're hearing me.
1: Yes, I hear you, perfect.
2: All right. Good morning, Anna. Please allow me first of all to wish my Chinese friends a happy New Year. Today is the Chinese New Year, and Belize's demographics have changed so much that as I'm sitting here, I can hear firecrackers going off out in the streets. Right. That is modern Belize. I also want to wish my uh, friends and relatives in Punta Gorda a happy 119th anniversary. We are celebrating the 119th anniversary of the sun. Uh, most of your listeners wouldn't know that uh, Punta Gorda is indeed uh, the furthest southern municipality that we have. And by the way, it's a, a positively gorgeous day here in Belize. Golden sunshine, cool temperatures, just a slight breeze, you know. We're getting there.
1: All right, Glenn. Yeah, so, so, Glenn, man, talk to me. Uh, here's a question that uh, I want to, you know, I want to start off this conversation with: What on earth is going on with the teachers and this, you know, uh, you know they fight with this government? What? Give us a sense of what these teachers are really asking or demanding of this of Mr. Barros or uh, government.
2: I think that my opinion is the first thing they want is certainty on the matter of their payings. Up until I think earlier this week, Mr. Barrow, as the Minister of Finance and the Prime Minister, could not say to them, well, you are going to get at least 3% increase. These are people who haven't had a pay increase in uh, almost 10 years. And uh, if you, I don't think anywhere in the world you, you have the same purchasing power, if you, you're, you're making the same amount of income that you were making uh, 10 years ago. So, first of all, they wanted an, an assurance from the government that they would get an increase you know, and that it wouldn't be less than three or four percent. You know, they were asking for a floor. Mr. Barrow uh, danced around, danced around and finally this week he came out and said, Well, I believe that it's not going to be less than three percent. You know, our, our, our system of government finances can be murky at times. And uh, when politicians choose to obfuscate or uh, not be clear, well, it causes it's a bit of a stress for uh, people living on a, on a fixed income. Mm-hmm. I think the teachers also are frustrated and, and a bit resentful. Almost every time Mr. Borrow has been speaking on the country's finances for the last, I would say, several months. He's been talking about how well he believes the economy is doing or is going to do. And they have not and he has not been able to just provide that reassurance to these people that they will be seeing an increase in their increase in their salaries. The second thing they are asking for is I think like nearly all citizens of Belize at this point, they want more accountability in our governance. They have the, the scandals. Uh, regarding former Minister of State Kenya and now uh, Minister of State Edmund Castro has been very, very disturbing all across the political spectrum. We want to clarify this, these matters, have more accountability in our governance, have more transparency, you know, and not having to be, it seems as like though it has been one unending cycle of scandals. This is not good for, for any citizen. And the teachers who as leaders again want some form of reassurance that all this is going to be dealt with in an accountable manner government the government in Belize right now I think is starting to see a crisis just this week uh, in its editorial, the editorial the, the, the leading newspaper in the country the manuela called for new elections. that is an extraordinary call and I and I consider it the most significant development in our political discourse over the past over
1: the past year, at least. Um, so yeah, let me let so, me. I mean, you you think that uh that, that um the teachers okay uh, I mean, as educators they're responsible for you know for you know we entrust our, our 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 most precious resource with them our kids you know you know do you think it's you know, besides a salary increase besides you know want wanting to you have a, you know, and it, their cause is just, let, let me be clear about that. You know, I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying, you think that um all, that's such a broad mandate, trying to curb corruption, trying to, uh, you know, um, affect, you know, other other public policy issues that essentially, I think, um, you know, goes outside of what their collective bargain agreement that they should be asking for. Would you say that, that that's a little bit problematic for them to be, have such a broad sweeping demands that they're making?
2: it is it is an argument but the the first thing I say to that is that I think nearly all citizens support the call by the teachers union for some certainty in terms of their salary telor- their proposed or from salary increases and secondly I think most of the citizens outside of the party centricion appreciate the fact that they are they are they are leading the call for for, for accountability in gover- governance this has been an almost intractable problem for decades and we all have to be concerned about it and i and i and i support and expect any organization any group or any individual citizen who is willing to stand up and say this has got to stop that we must have accountability that we must have better governance. You know, I, I think it's a it's a matter of principle. And I don't see the uh, I don't see the co joining, if you will, of the, the the two calls to be uh that I don't think that they should be mutually exclusive. In the end, we all want better governance. We all want accountability. And we should all, however we could, I'm not gonna ask for it. Listen, in in, in democracies like believe, we don't have democracy. When the people are allowed to speak, we have true democracy. When the government do- government listens.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you, 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 okay. I, I read the editorial that you that you referenced. Um, you know, that Evan Exide had um, you know, wrote, and that do you think that this government has lost credibility. Much as much as how the the former government under Mr. Musa had lost credibility in the, in the eyes of the public.
2: Well, let me let me let me conclude this, right? I agree with the editorial that the government has lost the moral high ground, if you will. I think that the government has lost credibility, and by credibility, I mean trust. With several key organizations and groups, right? I think the Belize chamber of commerce and industry who in the last war on against the the, the PUP government were outspoken. The Chamber of Commerce has become more outspoken now in calling for accountability. The unions as demonstrated by the uh, by the People's Union and by the teachers themselves are clearly showing that they have lost trust and credibility and confidence in the government. If you listen to the talk shows, right, and you listen to the 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 top images on the media, it is clear that the preponderance of the media, the majority of the media, have also lost trust and confidence in the government. The only way we would be able to tell whether or not the electorate Continues to have con- confidence in the government to be through an election, but I suspect, and it's only my opinion, and I, I, I do not want to confuse my opinion and have anybody think I'm speaking as fact, but my opinion is that at this point, the electorate would welcome the election, and they, they would want a government with a fresh mandate. Okay.
1: Um, Lynn. Uh, you, you have a little bit of back, background noise. I don't know if you uh have to buy a wind or something with you.
2: No no we no. hear you but I mean it's I suspect of... I suspect it's the internet.
1: Oh, okay, well no 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 problem. No no worries. Well, we can still hear you, I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to get a little bit of clarity, but we can hear you good. That's, so that's not the issue. You know, um you know, coming back to a point that you suggest that you that you brought up there, um in terms of credibility, I mean look. We, you know, given you you mentioned something about our system and our know, system of government beliefs, and the way it is. Even if, okay, look at the integrity commission that was. You know This this has long been a moribund institution. It seems, isn't it, isn't this a credible? Is this a body that we can believe in that that has the, the the authority, the statutory authority to 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 go after public officials elected or otherwise, if there's you know you know for misappropriation misappropri- of funds or conduct of becoming what exactly is this body? Is, is it symbolic?
2: I mean, does it have any power in its seat or is it
1: just there for show?
2: Uh, like, 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 many, like many of these bodies, whether it's the Public Accounts Committee or the Integrity Commission or the Ombudsman or the Contractor General, they're all, they're all bodies that came about as a result of the enactment of the, uh, well, the exception of the, the, the PAPC. You know, but these bodies came about with the enactment of the prevention of corruption in public life. These are not bodies that were designed to go to witch hunting. These are bodies that were designed to, you know, put in a, a role and a place where there is a certain flow of information that passes in front of them and they have are to look at that. And then if they see anything improper in that, they are to investigate and, and clarify. The laws are clear as to what are their what are what is their authority, what they are supposed to do if they discover wrongdoing. They were put in place as deterrence rather than for deterrence purposes rather than for enforcement purposes. Now in the case of the integrity commission, that was originally convened constituted in the the 1989-1993 uh, PUP administration it was continuing and it was fairly active in the 1993-1998 UDP administration and I know this because I had to appear before the 1998-2008 PUP administration The Commission was not as as active and I think my impression is that there was a collaboration between the PUP and the UDP members of the National Assembly to kind of, you know, kind of water it down a bit. In the 1998 to 2003, uh, sorry, the the 2008 to 2000, 12 UDP administration the Commission was remarkably inactive if it had been you know a kind of just a story before it mm-hmm. became a Uh following the death of its chairman at the time of its chairman at the time later in, in the term due to murder and his wife who was also a member of the Commission the Commission in effect Ceased to exist. It was never reconstituted. So at this point, as, as I sit here, there is no such thing as an integrity commission. The way the commission works, members of the National Assembly and their, their family and high-ranking government officials, don't forget, because it's not only members of the National Assembly, are supposed to file declarations every year saying as to what, what, what is their work, what, they, when, what are their assets and liabilities. It is it up it is apparent that during the latter part of the uh MUSA, last Musa administration, uh, members of the National Assembly started to be laggard in this in this matter. The administration and it, and the opposition at the time, got together, rewrote the law, amended the law to make it even stronger, right? With stiffer penalties and clearer demands. And then they went back to ignoring it. I believe that a properly constituted integrity commission, and by properly constituted, I don't mean just being having people appointed to it, but that it has a budgetary wherewithal to do its work is a necessity and would help to serve as a deterrent against corruption. But it's not the be all and the end-all. In my mind it won't necessarily prevent corruption. And it won't necessarily result in politicians, in particular, being prosecuted. There has to be more.
1: Well, I mean, oh, you're right. It's not. It's not. I mean, certainly, it's not going to be a um, panacea for you know what ill you know, the country. Um,
2: you know, it shouldn't be a placebo either. Because, true. Uh, there were times. There were times when you know administration officials from both administrations would kind of point to the Integrity Commission, right? In fact, Mr. Borough had promised in his, uh, in his 2008 campaign that he would, uh, he would enact an, what he called an uh, unjust enrichment law. But then when he got in and he was asked, well, how come you haven't, you haven't enacted this law? He pointed to the Integrity Commission and said, oh, with a more robust Integrity Commission or a certain Integrity Commission, we don't need one. And I, I would think that he was very, very wrong.
1: You know, the thing—the thing of thing it, you know. What I think when you listen to when, and these blogs. Oh, Glenn! By the way, let me just—you just, when you listen to Glenn Tillich live out of Belize City, I'm um, here with Piper'sburg, and um, Glenn is a uh, active. He's been in, active in Belize body politics for decades. Now he's also the editor of the um, of the uh, independent, independent newspaper. If you um, if you want if you if you're traveling and you can't listen to the show on the internet, you can call from your cell phone seven one four two four two six one one nine to to log in and hear us, or you can also go to the Skype link which is uh, BTR Listener that's BTR Listener zero two two. So uh, again, you're live with Mr. Glenn Tillett coming out of Belize City. All right, Glen, um, let's move on. Um, Let's talk about a little bit, little bit about uh, what you believe would be some of the constitutional reforms in order for anything to... I argue that we cannot do anything until we fundamentally reform our system. What, If there was one reform, structural reform, that, that has teeth, that has... that's meaningful, what would that be that you would like to see us... Well, I don't want to put you in the spot to say one reform, but if there were some reforms that you would like to see immediately that can stem some of the you know the the root cause of what we're seeing occurring in our in, in our country.
2: Uh, I think the first thing I would want to see is I, uh, what I'd call a special corruption prosecutor's office. You know, uh, somebody who is dedicated to going into these bureaucracies, departments, ministries, etc., and looking for corruption and, and prosecuting offenders. At this point, I don't think anything else is really changing, the bit trajectory, the, the trend of even more corruption as we are I, I, I think that would have an immediate impact. We have to get these people to really start looking over their shoulders. At this point, they, are, you know, they, they have total, they can have to be impunity, because it seems we are in a system that grants them immunity. That, that's the that's the first place I would go. I don't think anything else would bring a at least bring a heart to this uh, or slow it down we have we have gone through riots we have gone to you know see changes elections uh calls from both national and international bodies from within and without the border and instead of it getting better it got worse it might sound a bit draconian, and i'm sure that you know mistakes would be would would be made that's human nature but at this point that is where i would go
1: Mm-hmm. Lynn, are you um, you listening? Uh, do you have your web browser on? Um, listening no. to the show too? While you don't, you have Skype on?
2: No, I'm listening yes? to YouTube Skype.
1: Okay, but but do you have the um, do you you not do you have your internet browser on as well? Look, you know, with the show on showing or no? No,
0: no, oh, okay, no, no,
1: alright, no. alright. Just, was well, just okay,
2: great, good. You yes, know, sir. that's a, that, that's an excellent yes, point yes, that you. You were sorry to interrupt you, but you have to remember that our internet is a bit spotty at times.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, I just want the listeners <laughs> to understand. Thanks for bringing that up, Glenn, because, you know, please, my fellow Belizean <laughs> listeners you know, worldwide, like Glenn yeah. said, you know, we, we're talking about and you know, so please be patient. You know, but Glenn, we can hear you. I just was trying to, you know, I was trying to prove you, so you clarity, but we can still hear you. So just be patient, you know, my friends out there. You know, Glenn is giving us some very important, um, you know, information that we, we, you know, we, that can help us in determining how our country can be governed. But let's get back to, the, to, to this issue of um, constitutional reform, Glenn. So I think Moe said, you know, when I brought him on about a couple of weeks ago, he said, our oh, backs are to the wall. Do you share that position, that all boxes to the wall as far as the governance and jurisprudence?
2: I, I I do. I do. I uh, it sounds desperate to say well our boxers to the wall but as a citizen living here in Belize, when you see all that's going on and you hear the stories and you, you, you hear the cries, uh, desperate cries of people living in growing inequality, seeing a too tired society literally appearing before your very eyes you are desperate you are desperate for justice you are are desperate for more equality you are desperate because you you you, you are struggling on the outside of the political system to, to make a living to literally to survive and then you see these people get get literally getting away with murder before your very eyes so you do feel desperate you do you're, 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 you, you feel that there must be change or we are not going to survive as individual citizens or as a nation the level of corruption, the mismanagement um, you know the, the mistake setting over the very fabric of our society but it, it's not been easy to live in a country where at times the we approach civil war standards you know are, are, where your, your 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 fellow citizens seemingly are being killed left and right, you see you know every time you open a newspaper you see a foreclosure crisis that started maybe ten years ago and hasn't stopped you see people win elections win office and literally go from rags to riches in a matter <coughs> of like months you know while you continue to walk the streets of narrow hoping it seems now against hope that you will be able to make it as well you begin. Uh, you 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 remember the title from a movie? Uh, no country for old men. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Sometimes you can't believe there's no country for honest people. You know, it, it seems that the people who are making it, you have to you have to look at them with, with a bit of assent. You know, you 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 are forced to speculate that they are using dubious methods to, to, to get there, and that is the desperation.
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, you, you touch on a very salient point there because, you know, we are under this, we are on this uh, guise that, that, that we do have, you know, elections every five years and we have an opportunity to, to purge, if you will. And we do with new, new fresh blood. But it seems that we just continue to chase our tails. It's, it's like voting for d as the Mars Bishop once said. You know, democracy is not voting for twiddle D or twiddle every five years, but it seems that that seems to be your modus operandi. We, you know, we, you know, we can't legislate morality. So what is, you know, what is that going on that that's causing seemingly, seemingly honest? I'm not going to question the integrity, honest and you know, good people to when they get into the system, just essentially, just just go, go off the rocker if you will, and just you know. Yeah violate the public
2: trust. I I, I I can't put a finger in it, Glenn. What do you is going on? Uh, you know, ours is a system that lends itself to clientelism. Ours is a spoiled system. When the winner goes to spoil, the loser eats grass until such time as they can make it back to the top. And I think that's the basic flaw in the system. <clears throat> with each election, you know, we have completely turnover at the very top levels of government and by that I mean not only in the not only in the National Assembly or the Senate but across the top levels where the patrimony of the nation is distributed the system is such that uh, politically don't view this patrimony as their spoils for the taking upon taking government then you know they defeat they, they, they and gorge themselves we have to find a way to put our patrimony not so much out of the reach of politicians and the political elite. Clearly, we, continue, we will always need decision makers. But we have to guard the system in such a way that it is not as easy, number one, to so get hold of the spoils, and two, to escape without being punished for your misdeed because after you've been in office five ten years you know a defeat is no punishment in fact for some of them a defeat is a release a defeat simply means that they they can now go on to enjoying their life with the spies they have they have acquired mm-hmm. we have to find a way to ensure that they do not leave office with a truckload of loot, so to speak with fat bank accounts, big houses. We have to ensure that uh, office is public service. That there is greater scrutiny. That there is more oversight. And most of all, we have, got to, we have got to ensure that there is a divide between cabinet and the national assembly. The PTJ made a ruling earlier early, uh, last week in regards to nationalization, where you basically um, said, well, under your constitution, your national assembly is, is, is basically supreme, right? So now, if the national the national assembly can basically pass any law you want, know? and because of, they have such an authority, and the national the the ruling party in the national assembly, the government says, and cabinet are one. There is absolutely no separation of that authority. None whatsoever. Cabinet decides, uh, in, in effect, and the National Assembly legalizes it. It's
1: like a <laughs> rubber stump, not more than a rubber stump for, for basically <laughs> the Cabinet.
2: It, uh, you know, it, uh, yeah, it, uh, it provides a veneer of democracy because then the opposition gets, to, gets up on na- that national stage and is able to bring forward some of its complaints and criticisms but that is about all of it that's the end of it right there and in that sense that is the death of our democracy i think mr burtucker described as the the, um,
1: the 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 minority will have its stake but the majority will have its way i mean he said that's how he explained it to me you know in terms of that the whole scenario but um okay you know there has been much has been said about the 13th senator and I'm not so sure, given the current structure of our jurisprudence and, and governance, that, you know, what impact will a 13th sen- senator have on this overall process that we're discussing? What, what would be the implication?
2: Well, we, 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 just cite, we just cite earlier uh, in this Penal crisis, where for one of the 13th senators, the government was able to resist calls for thorough public scrutiny of what happened regarding the issuance of that passport to the Korean citizenship sitting in jail in Taiwan. The, here you have a Senate where the opposition parties, parties representatives, as well as those of civil society, of uh, the unions, the business sector, and the churches, all agreed that a thorough public examination of what had transpired was required, was necessary. But the government was able to resist it because not only did they have uh, equal votes on their side, but they held the casting vote. If we had had a certain senator, perhaps that person liked the opposition and the churches and the union and the chamber might have thought that indeed a, a, a thorough public examination of the tax was necessary. We have to do this to provide to provide some form of check to the authorities and some balance to the power of the of the government. The government is simply too all powerful even if you even if you are allowed to criticize you're allowed to voice your opinion that is all there is there is nothing else you can do short of violence or civil civil disobedience or taking to the streets to check that unwarranted authority that limitless power mr. boris uh, reason for not appointing the 13 senators, is as you said well it could good luck government that is patently false. if you as a government want to pass any legislation and you can't get at least one person from civil society or, or, or one senator from civil society or the chamber or the Union or the churches to agree with you then obviously there's something wrong with that legislation or that request or that motion obviously because even if the government won the majority of votes in an election the government cannot claim to represent in these matters the majority of the electorate I am sure that collectively the opposition the churches, the chamber, and the unions represent a far greater proportion of our citizens, including those who are unwilling to vote.
1: You know, my, my issue with the church that Senator, one of the questions that I have about that is, um, um, will that be appointed? Because won't that person have this, their inherent bias? With respect to the way we you know how you know you know how we you know we divided along partisan lines, will that person have the inherent bias because let's say we're talking about a person who will essentially be like a deal breaker or will be the difference maker if we have a deadlock um, I'm trying to you know explain to us how do you believe that the effectiveness of this person can, you best, know, can, can yes. be can o- be o- overwhelmed
2: well look first of all uh this censorial representatives are not necessarily appointed. They are all the choice of the majority of the organizations they the members of the organization they represent. In the case of the churches, because you have different denominations, they basically, among themselves, have worked out a rotation basis. That is why, at this point, the churches representative a Catholic priest. Before him, the representative was uh, Senator Henry Garden, who is a Baptist uh, pastor. At one point, the representative, in fact, I believe the first religious representative was actually the Anglican bishop. So there is some rotation there. In the case of the chamber, the two uh, the two employer representatives, the Belize, be- Belize Business Bureau and the Belize Chamber of Commerce actually hold a joint election where you know uh, the people that would like to be senator are voted on and the person with the highest number of votes become the senator. In this case, uh, Senator Mark Zaraga was chosen after he won an election in which our very good friend are shepherd contested for the, the for, contested to wanted to be representative as well as another gentleman I believe it was uh, mr. Fred Hunter former so minister so it's not like um it's an arbitrary selection process the other thing I've noticed and I will give people like uh, Senator Garden for, for this as well as uh, Senator Liberara they take their duty seriously and they consult because they are there to represent their organization right they are there to represent their sectors when Godwin Holt for example when he was there at one point he said well even though the chamber might not agree this is the way I will vote because I have to vote out of conscience etc and he got a lot of criticism for it and I would like to ask him now, that he's a government senator If he would dare vote his conscience or his principles against the wishes of the government of the day that appointed him, the party that appointed him. If you're a senator, you're not there to vote your your conscience. You're not there to vote the principle. You're there to vote the majority view of your organization. So in that sense, I am not too worried about personal bias. The civil society had elected a senator. In this case, it was uh, the Royal And he was selected after an election in which three other people were three other people ran, wanting to be the senatorial representative. And I am sure that if he had gone there and voted, what was his personal view against the wishes of the organisation, they would have taken him down. So it's not it's not okay. I I'm not too um I'm, I'm not too concerned. That you might have somebody going there and just, wa- just representing their partisan views.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: any 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 senator who does that will find they are in a lot of problems. Will find themselves in a lot of problems with their organization.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the, the system, you know, could use that that, that 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 13th senator. I I could see, you know, based on your explanation where if it's, you know, if the person, like you said, like a Senator Henry Henry Gardner, somebody, Arjun Matura, somebody who you said, you know, who have demonstrated that they have the ability to be, you know, to be fair and want in in the interest of, uh, uh, you know, accountability, uh, you know, I think that the the 13th Senator can be a, you know, a a reform that definitely can, you know, step in the right direction um, towards better governance, as you've mentioned before. but we're coming up on a break but I just want you to uh, you know, we're coming up on a break in about five minutes um, I want you to I want to ask you what do you believe in terms of this particular government and I want, to, I want us to be fair because we're not here to bash anything or bash anyone here's a government that came in and the that they're going, to be going to be open transparent <laughs> and where did they go wrong or what happened
3: well, um, I, I That's think
1: a loaded question.
2: <laughs> no, I I I I think it's a fair question. When we look at what is rapidly becoming a debacle, we have to look back and wonder what the heck happened. You know, at times the, there are people in the electorate who f- feel as though well, they were run over. You know, the, this government did come on a very rousing platform, uh, clear, overwhelming majority support for a platform that stressed transparency and accountability. What went wrong? The government has not been transparent and accountable. That is the gist of it. People feel as though they have been had. It's not just buyers remote. You know, it's not like you 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 went to the store and you saw something and it turned out not to be quite what you thought it would be. It's more like you went to the store and they gave you a package with something you wanted and then when you opened it it was something else. You know, it's like going to the store to buy to buy a, a bread or something like that, and when you get home, you've been given a lump of coal. That's more like it. You know, that's more like it, and I and I and I, and I feel it because remember, Mr. Barrow had a super majority in that first term, and even with a super majority with a, a, a super-majority that meant he could pass any law he wanted constitutional amendments he still could not produce a government that was transparent and accountable in fact things for that administration became so dire in terms of its prospects or becoming so dire he actually called elections a year earlier. He, his government his first administration only lasted two years and it only lasted two years because he called elections early you know what he him to call elections early now here you are he's sitting in a government he's an administration that has a very narrow majority and already he has run into no end no of trouble and what's the trouble corruption 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 a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability yeah, and I I'm not saying that out of partisan bias or anything. I'm saying that that is the thought.
1: Yeah, that's the prevailing, um, that's the prevailing sentiment that, that appears. And you know, um, I, I, you know, when I we, you know, I spend some time on these blogs, sometimes more than I need to, you know, on, on these blogs, and you see where, you know, our discourse is so. And we can pick this up after the break because we're coming up on a break in about two minutes. But we see where our discourse is so uh, limited because you know we tend to confine it within, you know, the narrow confines of you know what the PUP will do or what the UDP will do, and we don't look at the bigger picture of what you know what is what is right for the country, you know, what is in the national interest, national security interests of the of the nation as a whole, where everyone can benefit, not just a chosen few or a few partisans who you know go. Within that particular party, but but when we come back from the break, when, and we were going to tackle other subjects, but um, briefly, you know, yeah. what do you think is is, is, is is Mr. Barr disingenuous in his in his approach in his uh, suggesting that corruption is not an issue that there's no corruption there?
2: Well, I I don't think he has he has, he has been so brazen as to the say there's no corruption. Um, I think Mr. Borough's be- defense has, ha- has always been very late. We are not as bad as it used And that we will, when we, when we do see evidence of corruption, we have acted, we have acted on it. The problem is for him is that for most of us, his actions have been clearly a case of too little, too late, and continues to be. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will take a brief break, and
1: um, we're gonna join Lentilic coming live from Belize, and uh, you know we're gonna be discussing, you know, how our government, how we are governing Belize. You know, governance, is, governance, and jurisprudence basically is the, is the, um, the gist of what we're discussing today. Because a lot of us out here, you know, in the diaspora, you know, we we still are don't understand the intricacies of, um, you know, how. Things and laws get passed and believed, and trust me, Ventility is one of the few individuals who understand this very, very, very well. So that's one of the reasons why I was excited to have him on. But we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Greetings, we are back. Uh, Greetings, my fellow Belizeans. We are back with um, Glenn Tillit out of um, Belize City, live. And um, we are discussing basically the way we are governed and some of the issues that we believe, you know, uh, have impacts uh, the way we are governed and and some of the possibly solutions that we, you know, we can lend to making our country a better place. Um, So, Glenn, let's, let's, let's continue the discussion. Um, and here's the thing that a lot of people that I've seen on these blogs and, you know, in conversation with people is like, okay, we have the People's United Party, which essentially came in with, you know, whenever they, you know, it seems to be a recurring theme that they come into power. The reason is what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, do this or do that, you know. And, um, and then once they get in, it seems like it's almost like an inevitable thing that that they're gonna falter, that they will fall flat on their face. It's almost without even it it, 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 it seems to be a very sickening thing because we I remember this this this, this maybe nineteen ninety eight with the same promise with the same thing they came in and given time, you know, they falter. What what do you believe caused that?
2: I think I think first of all he was we have to recognize the fact that Until the advent of Radio in 1989 Belize- the leader was basically a handful of newspapers and one-way totally controlled and dominated by the government One of my friends liked to call the media a referee and the media believes is only now over the last, I would say, 8 years or so. Starting to have started to embrace its role, as that honest broker who provides the kind of information to citizens that is free from the skin and propaganda. Now when you, you have a party campaigning for election, they promise you everything and anything. And any sensitive person should be able to ascertain, if not then, at least by now, that many of these promises are simply, you know, they are simply, it's not so much that they are trying to try, but our fellowship would not allow us to fulfil all these promises. Now they do that because they want to reach uh, the the widest number of people that that they can. But they are, I call them, impossible promises. These manifestos are often like, you know, thick booklets with literally over 100 promises I mean, clear promises. And they are made with the intention to persuade people to vote. So in that sense, they are they're not, they're not uh, an offense to clear pledges. They are simply promises, for so you say. These government... These parties, once they are elected, they get their hands on the scouring They get the keys to the, the, the treasure so to speak. They get the authority to manage their supplements. They're, before the people even realize that they are not keeping their promises or their pleasures, they are already starting to live the life of, you know, of are, 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 are princes and their concentration camps to ensuring that you experience. I don't know, sometimes I I get whimsical and think to myself I wonder what would happen if a group of citizens got together and petition the Supreme Court to have these parties in government fulfill their promises clearly they have broken their pact their contact with the people they are where they are because we made those promises, and we, who are poor folks, are where we are because we're Um, you, know, you you
1: had once brought you I think I can recall again. You had know, wrote the commission, the integrity commission, uh, questioning whether or not they ju- uh, some you know something with um. I think it was a junket to Cuba with some members of the opposition. What, what 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 did that what was the outcome of that i mean was that something you believe that most citizens should do I mean, what was the impact of that particular uh, decision there
2: well i am hoping that when if mr borough does follow through and his promise to reconstitute the commission that citizens will or citizens will look back in history and immediately complain to the commission about mr castro and mr Tena. Because the Commission can only act on a complaint. When they are petitioned like that, they are by law. They should investigate to determine whether or not the, the, the complaint has merit. And if indeed they determine the, the that it has no then if it's a criminal matter, it should be brought to the attention of the DPP. Back in 1994, uh, several ministers of the UDP government, I believe, Minister Finnegan, Minister Boyce, uh, Minister Ellington, uh, I think there was a trip, were taken to Cuba by a gentleman by the name of James Wong. Because when all his kids experienced their junket, they didn't really go there to do any business. and talk they the culture that basically they went on there. This is the highlight for a couple of days in a hotel, in a big, big fancy hotel. I wrote the commission to ask whether or not this junket, this gift, was a violation of the prevention of corruption in public life, which says clearly and explicitly that no public official should accept a gift worth more than $250 and that if they do, even for personal reasons, it should be reported. Now uh, clearly if you have thrown on an all-expense paid the vacation to Cuba, that has got to be worth more than $250. I wrote the letter so I, I think it was like many, two months, I heard nothing at all from the, the commission. Then one day, out of the blue. They are not the same. They that they would they would take up the complaint, they would consider the matter. In the time when we made the when we made the announcement and when I was to appear with the commission, Mr. Barrow back up in the house and said that he started my complaint because that was whimsical if you will. And that um I, as far as he was concerned, he was the Attorney General at the time, that like, I should face being put in jail for a year or pay a fine of $10,000 for being treasonous with the Commission's time. But the Commission was held by an attorney by the name of Nick DeJones, took the matter quite seriously and was prepared to hear it. But at the hearing, before the matter could be attended by the government. Since uh, Gandhiji so makes representation as the he was the lawyer, he the attorney, the legal expert for the commission, and he basically wanted to tell the commission that this was not a matter for them to consider because in his view and in his opinion, I had not complained; I had only made an inquiry. Because I had phrased it in the form of a question, he declared that it was an inquiry. And as a result, the commission couldn't hear it. Furthermore, he said that I couldn't bring it back. In other words, I couldn't go rephrase it and bring it back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it died there. But what it shows is that at this point, any citizen can go, can write the commission and say, you know something? i read the first report. I've heard Mr. Penner, and I think that Mr. Penner, what he did, violated the, the rules, the regulations, and the laws that govern integrity in public life. And the commission should, as per the law, have a hearing on that matter. You know, anybody could write the commission and say, you know, from what I've seen with Mr. Castro, he accepted $4,000 from the, I believe, the airport authority. And that is a violation of the law. Because essentially that is easy. And clearly 4000 is more than $250. 250 dollars. And he did not report it. So I think that as a tool, right, that is something we should, we should all consider utilizing.
3: Yeah. Um.
1: You know, we live in the diaspora. We live in such as, you know, myself and many others. And we are on these blogs and, you know, you know, we've been discussing the unification of, of, of um, our, all our believers abroad. Well, with, the, with, the, with, with, you know, Belizeans such as yourself, you know, who at one point used to live here, but not just you, but believers in general. And um, we always hear this thing that, you know, well, you guys don't live down there, so you don't live on the ground, you know, so you understand. Yes. See, all these things you and I are discussing, these, very, I'm, the reason I'm being patiently bringing out all these things, so people can understand, look you know, these are pertinent issues that affect all believers, not just ones at home, but abroad. So somebody like Glenn Tillett, you know, who understands these intricate issues, I want you to be, I'm happy that you're able to let us understand. But here's the question I have for you, basically. What, do do you believe that the unification of the diaspora with our brothers and sisters in in Belize will lead to any form? Because Moses was like, Mose's position was okay. I don't want to exchange one set of squandrel for another set of squandrel. You know, Moe's was very skeptical about it. What is your position on that?
2: I'm not quite sure I understand the question, right? Okay, let me, let
1: me reframe it. Let me, let, me, let me reframe it. Do you believe that the, the, the diaspora has a role to play in you know, governance and jurisprudence in making a better belief?
2: Well, first of all... Um, I think there has to be an attitudinal adjustment across, across the board where believers are concerned, both our own and abroad. We have to take the, the view that belief as a nation is without borders. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, if you are a believer, you are a My humble opinion is that there are more trained, skilled, accomplished believers living outside of Belize's geographic borders than within. I think it is also inarguable that Belize, the Belizean seat within its borders, Means all the help it can Why, how can you argue that having more skilled, accomplished, trained, and educated Belizeans taking a more meaningful role in our affairs would be deleterious or would be harmful to us as in yourself. I would think the argument would be the opposite. Clearly, having more willing and helpful hands put to the task would be to all our benefit. You know, of. Um
1: I, you know, the, the, the argument again has always been to follow up on that that line. There is that. Um, do you do you believe that that role, the role of the diaspora, the role of the diaspora, should have any impediments to their involvement? When I say impediments, I mean um, because you, you know we we, have, yep. we we took up U.S. citizenship as adults, um, some of us anyway. Yep. That yes, we can participate you know, in, 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 in in the electoral yep. process, believe, but only insofar so in so far as voting not saying that that's what we want to do, I'm saying, but should we have any restrictions placed on our involvement?
2: I'll, I'll evolve to the point where I think it's, it, it, it's a human rights issue. You can't be part Belizean. You're either Belizean with full rights or you're not. You, know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either Belizean with full rights or you're not. And if you are Belizean without full rights, that's fairly unconstitutional. And it's something we, we, we simply have to address, I don't think every believer who is a dual national, whether American, United Kingdom, whatever, necessarily wants to come home. But I take that attitude, and it's my bias. personal bias, that I would want every believer who has dual nationality to come home. I would want to. when I look at the way believe is changing demographically. I think we need more Belizeans here with their shoulder to the wheel, if so be the the case. When I look at how rapidly available land is disappearing to ordinary, you know, moving out of the reach of ordinary Belizeans and moving into the hands of foreign speculators most of all, I would want to see more Belizeans with the wherewithal, with the capacity and with the desire. To help us build back belief and build back believe in such a way that it's a country we are called to call home I don't think I don't think there should be any bar to so, Believers of uh, dual nationality participating meaningfully in an in, in electoral process I would have the proviso at this point that you must have some time of residency in country before you can, you know, you, you can assume office, but otherwise, from that, I don't see why we should be trying to, if you will, disenfranchise our citizens.
1: You you mentioned something about attitudinal adjustment. What sort of attitudinal adjustment? Because I am an, I'm of the impression that uh, oftentimes we both on both sides of this issue we tend to um we tend to subscribe to uh to. You know, to stereotypes and misinformation based on maybe what we see on TV, based on some interaction that we have. So it gives us a limited concept, conceptualization of what our involvement or citizenship entails. What kind of attitudinal adjustment, specifically, that you referred to just now, you'd like to us to, to engage in?
2: I want us to recognize all of it. So to come to a national consensus process, that. If you are a believer, you are a believer, regardless of where you live. In our words, let's, let's get past the us and them divide. You know, those of us at home, we are us. Those living out there, they are them. You know, let's get past that. We are all Believers, and accept that coming together and working together is what we need to continue to build Belief. And that if we don't, if we continue to to be divided, those divisions will continue to be exploited for people whose interest is not necessarily a strong, robust, healthy Belizean nation. So that the attitudinal adjustment I want is for all of us to recognize that we are Belizeans and wherever we are in this world, we are in the robot, if you will, of the Belizean nation. There can't be some people who are just part Belizean or are a little bit Belizean. no, a little Belizian or not. I want all of us to recognize that as believers, we put Belize first. Um,
1: what do you think occurred, er, In terms of the the Seventh Amendment, this was the amendment where you know that where we could have a, that Mr. Barra had brought before the House that he was going to, you know, involve all national divisions, particularly those in the United States, you know, in, in, in the in electoral process. What, what happened with that? I mean, was it done right? Was it a half-hearted measure? Were, 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 were these people really serious? You, know,
0: you were there on the ground, so give
1: us yeah. a take on what you think occurred with that, that particular amendment, from both parties' perspective?
2: I think Mr. Burrow was caught flat-footed by the ferocity of the opposition to it. Hello?
1: Yeah, go ahead, then. we hear here. Yeah. Go ahead,
2: brother. Yeah, the background noise stopped, right? Yeah, um, I thought he was, he was, as an administration, he was flat-footed by the ferocity of the opposition it. Now, there had been, I think, up until that point, I, actually, I think the whole thing was kind of categorical if you will for the Belizean in the third. There's a lot of resentment in Belize, where the issue of Belizean Americans are concerned. There are a lot of Belizeans here who have who believe that Belizean Americans exhibit a superiority complex. They resent the fact that they are left. They seem to have gone on to much greener pastures. And they are not necessarily struggling with us at home. There are even some who believe that they are left many of their problems behind and even the issue of their immigration created a problem i think a lot of that came to the core in the debate and the discussion regarding the seventh amendment there's also a legitimate fear and i call it, i use the word legitimate um deliberately because throughout our history because of our problem with their we have had Fear that there may be some sort of color movement in Belize, where some traitor may emerge in a position of authority, and weaken no resolve to remain a free and separate nation with its territorial integrity intact, and many many misunderstood this and thought that this would create. This could create a world for just such a person, if you will, to emerge. Some sort of Manchurian candidate, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the opposition. And thirdly, by the second Amendment, a lot of people were also concerned that Mr. Borough had become dictatorial. He's a very authoritative figure and many said that he was ramming down he was ramming this remember it wasn't just dual, that amendment had several issues in it and his stance was that well he wasn't going to separate then he was just going to pass it through as you know one omnibus bill if you will one omnibus amendment so if you oppose any part of the bill any other part of the of the bill you almost had to oppose the removal of the dual nationality. So by the
1: factor, one, one, um, opposition of one part, you, know, you just had to do the whole thing. So, so, yes. so, so, so essentially, so even though some people you know, were not necessarily opposed to it per se, just because yes. of the fact, the nature of the way the bill was presented, you right. had to oppose the whole thing.
2: Right. I don't remember all the other but eventually you ended up pulling back the uh, separating the dual nationality from it, history from it. But I think the rest of it passed. I think that was the bill also that uh brought about uh more stringent uh, these draconian gondals, etcetera as well. You know, which a lot of people were opposed to as well. You know, so that yeah, yeah I, I think all that by up into it. I think right now if Mr. Barrow would do would do it properly. That is put out there that look we are contemplating this. This is our position on it. Don't put it as an amendment I'm going to take to the House on task. First, take it to the various civil society organizations for their discussion and well Create a national debate outside of the prison of partisan politics. And then, if you can see that people have been persecuted, there's a national consensus, take it to the host? Like, people won't say you no, know, because he can't pass it alone. He you need the opposition. He need well, the opposition to
1: vote. One of the things, Linda, in, when he was in Los Angeles uh, recently, that question was brought to him by um, several people. I think one by the name of... Um, um, a man by the name of Mr. and also by Nuri Akbar, you know, Derek Estrada. And he didn't answer Nuri Akbar, but his position was, you know, that, look, um, I tried, and it didn't occur. And, and the, the, he gets the sense that the Belizean people didn't want it. That's, that was essentially, you know, how he came across. As, though, look, I tried, and, you know, when I had the majority, but it's not something that I... In other words, he, he didn't seem like he was willing to invest any more political capital to, to, you know, towards you know, putting that amendment, you know, for the dual National, uh, in front of the cabinet or in front of the house again, and uh, uh, incidentally on that line also to the PUP's position, because I, you know, I, you know, and I don't want to be fair to them, but I don't want to judge them based on people like Silvano Woods or you know or others who or vehemently you know against it. But
2: no, it's not the PUP it wasn't a PUP's position. It was the PUP's position never PUP supporter her position is from her, her personal that's her personal opinion and principles. that's a personal stance on her part and I'm well aware of her opposition and she believes there's a brand of nationalism right? that basically says that if you are if you are a Belizean you, 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 you should not want to be a, a nationality a, a, any other country's national for any reason but if you are too Belizean, right, it's Belizean I call it a super conservative position you know if like all the conservatives in the U.S.A. well, you can't just be opposed to abortion you have to be opposed to birth control and all that as well right mm-hmm. I think, so I think it's a little bit extreme but to be fair to Silvana I think that's her personal position I don't think she's a supporter necessarily of the PUP and that her conviction comes from the PLP. The QP says so I think their position in opposition to your nationality were shaped from when from independence. Because you have to remember that the original independence constitution did not uh, can, did not allow for your nationality at all. Indeed. In any, in any form. And that you know, a lot of the QP position in my view is a whole from that. I think though that if the argument is properly seen and properly took to the wrong time trial, you will body politics of the party. The leaders will be pushed to amend that Well,
1: you know, I mean it's you know, and I I don't like it. I don't want to belabor the point because, you know, I mean you've made it very clear. But, you know, I think at the time you know, you know, um at the, at the particular time when that amendment was tabled um, you know, it would it would it would seem that to many that the, the main opposition was coming from members of the People's United Party, people like uh, Mr. Fonseca and Mr. Ms. Schumann and others. You know who you know they they presented the arguments as to why they weren't. You know that seems for that particular Seventh Amendment that was seems to have been one of the main things that derailed. You know yeah. that particular thing was. The, you know, they, well not the amendment per se but the, the, the issue of dual citizenship was front and center of the whole 7th amendment
2: I, I, I would agree I think the ppr organized the opposition to it and galvanized the opposition to it they spent money they they expended a lot of energy and effort in their opposition to it you know they recognized that it could be a lightning rod issue they recognized that um Tactically, Mr. Barrow had made, an, had made an error to present it for his and they don't it. And they could do so in all righteousness by saying, you know, that um, we are the opposition, and that's your role. You know, so a lot of the argument wasn't made along principles. I don't think that the argument was special, and I don't think that the government side really argued for it. The government side did not really go out on the carpeting. They did not really go out and try to rally people to. It. They did not go out and try to explain. All they did was conduct some consultation That for the most part the people were able to ambush them by packing their hearts and the, with their with their people and creating the atmosphere that the the, 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 the amendment was widely unpopular. You know I that appearance aside, my view that uh, most people are confused, perplexed, and were undecided. Um, you
1: know, I, you you believe that he overreached him because if I, you know I, what I hear you saying is that um, the the intentions were there, but because of his
2: perceived
1: arguments that he was just wrong, well, you know, and because he has super majority he just wants, you know. Yeah. Ram things down the throat if you will, of the opposition. So this was a way of checking him then. I mean the seventh amendment was a way of like holding <laughs> him, telling him say, Look, you can't you know, I mean that's, i mean, I don't want to misquote you is that is that what is that is that what you're saying then?
2: Uh, that I, 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 I that is my view. That is a large part of my view. You have to remember that Mr. Barrow in his first term passed more constitutional amendments than any other administration he passed the first one within a hundred years of taking office and no matter how right or after a you may think of constitutional amendment it will always it will always provoke debate because the, the, the of the nature of our system and by the time he got to the second amendment I think he had passed the first by the time you got to the seventh amendment, I mean, people are basically like, listen, you can't you, you can't just be pushing these things just because you have a super majority. You know, you can't just be ramming these things down just because you have a super majority. That's dictatorship. We want to have our say, Especially those of us who may be in may be opposed to it. And tactically he made a mistake. He did not depend he just assume that, Well yeah, maybe we are. The PUP, they will make a little noise over there and then I will go to the house and pass it. But the PUP had learned from its opposition to some of the previous amendments. and this time they stand They were organized and they were prepared to spend money and spend effort to oppose it. Now you to well, I, uh, I
1: think also, Glenn, what was uh, one of the things that we observed was that... Um, in, I mean, in addition to bringing it up, and, you know, so he get, we give him kudos for, you know, at <laughs> least bringing it up. But um, he didn't involve, at least not from where we were looking, from our vantage point, he did not involve the diaspora. I mean, uh, the, these debates or even, even the campaign for it out here to see, to get support for it from, you know, from Belizeans in the diaspora. It was just a situation where it was brought in Belize and that was it. And, you know, and the opposition in, in Belize, that was all it was considered. There, nothing was done out here to involve. Members of you know of the community out here. It's not that I have you know, I, and I'm very active in these communities. and I didn't see anything or, or hear anything regarding you know how we can want some sort of support for
2: it. The sole, that's probably I believe in. I I heard spoke in support of it. You know, the kind in of the widow of uh, the late Dr. Edward Lynn. Yes, but the only person I heard from the diaspora who, who, spoke in, who spoke in support of it. You are right, there was a complete silence. And for the most part, Mr. Burroughs himself did not really go out there and campaign for his leader. I think he made, a, he made a serious tactical and strategic error. He was not prepared for the opposition, the, the philosophy of it. And he did not address... That strong wind that was blowing, so it ended up, you know, it ended up blowing off the sales of that particular book.
1: No? One of the issues that I saw, you know, that we see in Belize, is that whenever and you know whenever the opposition, any well well if you few the opposition is there, and you, even though your cause might be just or legitimate, and whenever you criticize any action of the the government of the day. You know, you're you a pair do you know, like like you, like it's, you you know like you seeing as this, you know like like you know I saw this you know you know to use a movie term like get off my lawn kind of you know
0: yeah kind of, very yeah.
1: you know like angry like I know that your 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 concerns or your position is not legitimate. You know, um, do you believe that's what occurred here too? I mean, with, with with the with your position to this particular amendment?
2: Yeah, there there, there was some of that. There were was some of that. Like I said there were several issues that got conflated and then boiled into uh, into the school. And, uh, and I was, uh, was that part of the amendment that got sacrificed. And uh, Mr Boris he face with that one because I don't see out of all the politicians here and we have the most the largest number as a black of the last twelve he figured that he could not hurt his chances at election chances with that for the reason so he could sacrifice it. You know, whereas the position here here in the theater would appear to hurt his party's chances at the election. But believe the the partisan practice of our politics is that you are either with you or you are against there is no you. There's nobody then. We are not issue oriented, we are oriented towards parties. That's good for the party It's good for me. But in any part the party is harmful to me. So we you know, everything tends to be divided along party positions and party lines.
1: Well, I think that's a testament to a political in- immaturity. But um let's 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 uh, approach another subject that um you know, 20 minutes or so that we have left that has been very 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 uh, close to the heart of many Belizeans, you know,
0: yeah.
1: living abroad, in the diaspora. And one of the things that you know, are we talking about the the Guatemala dispute. You know, we went from being uh, Anglo-Guatemalan dispute, you know, where England was involved. You know, where it's now just um, a referendum between us and Guatemala. And recently we had a road map that was launched. Well, I should say, this, you know, it keeps going, you know, it's a subject that keeps on reinventing itself, if you were, in, you know, a different period of time in history. Uh, the referendum in down 2013, uh, August 6, because Guatemala unilater- unilaterally decided that, the, you know, I guess the timing or the dynamics or the logistics was all right for them, so they backed out of it. We did a lot of really and we just we just let them without even I don't think we you know without we didn't really dispute it or we didn't even hear and cry. So here we are now twenty fourteen and now we have a new road map. What has Has anything changed, then? Well
2: <laughs> No, I I think that we we are committed to a course of negotiations and for the most part they have been fruitless. And you also accept that just about everything we have said to further sort of all of the two our uh, beliefs that independence and free of the experience has so far failed to, to, to resolve the dispute. And everything we have said from threatening invasion to you know all their lobbying work have also failed. So we keep kinda resorting and getting back to negotiations and in truth the roadmap is just a reaffirming of our negotiating positions which have always been well not always but over the last two decades since the 1990s have been basically well guatemala recognizes that believe is an independent and separate territory but it has a claim it never really states what the claim is and upholds it up, so we keep resetting and resorting to this position that okay we are two states, we have a difference of opinion, and we will try to build confidence in each other. Essentially that's what we would not matters. I personally believe that we will never ever get that in Malachi, very in Malaysia to any referendum on the IPJ. Not, why, not until nearly two generations of the political elite in Guatemala, either diet or attained, team, have to take their hands off the leader of the power. They are not afraid that Belize's referendum would not be successful because of the pressure. They are afraid that there is no. They are afraid that the majority of Guatemalans because we don't, we don't hear from the majority of Guatemala's in the, 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 the 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 so-called the lower class. We always are hearing from the political and economic elite.
0: Yeah,
1: the ruling really class, yeah.
2: Yeah. My personal experience with the the ordinary Guatemalans is that they don't give a thing about the thing. And they would prefer that Guatemala becomes more like Belize. And Belize becomes like Guatemala. Or become a part of Guatemala. Yeah, and I, you know I, I think as as, as as days and weeks and months and years go by, that will become more and more evident, because Guatemala continues to go through a huge, far-reaching, widespread social, economic, and political upheaval.
1: You know, um, you know what? Uh, the thing that, uh, that, that 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 I find interesting is that you know we have okay, it's almost like a convoluted approach. On the one hand, we, say, we, we argue, okay, well, this claim is unjust, this claim is unfunded, Guatemala has no rights, we have internationally recognized borders. All these bullet points we, we, we put out, then, in this, but in the same breath, we, we argue, well, but Guatemala, we can't just let the claim be there, we don't want to Guatemala. I mean, it, 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 it's a very convoluted and confusing approach. Either we are fish or fall, either we say, look, this is our borders. And internationally recognized, you know, you could, you know, you go to any map and you see it, and we are enforce it, and you know, we're going to enforce it. And Guatemala, this is, this is what it is. If you want to negotiate with us about other issues that we could that we could um agree on in terms of economic uh, economic uh, uh, upliftment for both countries, then that's a separate issue. But as far as our borders are concerned, it's non-negotiable. But we seem to want to have it both ways. Yes, the borders are. You know, we, keep, we keep saying to people, to the public, the claim is unfounded, it, you know, it's unwarranted, don't pay no attention, but in the same breath, well, we we, we, we trying to compromise. What's causing this ambiguity?
2: Well, uh, I, I don't see it as an ambiguity. The, the simple fact is that we don't negotiate our borders. We negotiate Guatemala's claim. <laughs> you know, and basically our negotiation, and that's why it, 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 it works like right this. They have a claim, and it is their efforts to perpetuate this claim. They as a country, as a nation, get other people to listen to them, They get other nations to listen to them, to defend themselves against that claim, we have to go to those very same people who make up the community of nations, and say to them their claim is bogus, their claim is unjust, their claim is unfounded. and those folks say to us, you know something, we agree with you all that might be right, but as civilized nations and the world community, the way we study this is, so stay around on that table and come up with a solution to Guatemala's claim. I don't know what call it, believes Guatemala's claim, you know. As far as I'm concerned, it's not it's Guatemala's claim. There will be no claim if they didn't perpetuate it. None whatsoever. But the fact that they perpetuate it and they send an enormous amount out resources time energy and money perpetuating it means that we have to defend ourselves against it now we do have options in the sense that yes we can try to build a wall we can try to make our military might source of like like Israel for example that they wouldn't dare try to formulate this screen. you know but in the end it's a cost value analysis the easiest thing to do is to say, all right, that so you have a claim, let's talk about it. What's the solution? Oh well, give me half your country and you say, Well oh, no, well that, that won't be So they say, Well give me all of your country. You say, Oh well, that would be they say, well give me a strip of this and you say, Oh no that won't be And so we keep going out ar- going around in what appears to be a circle. But the reality is that we have this problem because they insist on it, and we can't find a way to get them to stop insisting on it. We tried several, we tried several options, but we can't get that class of people who have ruled Guatemala through military might and through economic might for the last 150 years. So recognize that we have absolutely no intention of ever giving them anything at all. Even what even other the rest of the world has said to them, you know, your claim is pure, your claim is not worth the paper and the time and the effort. And the rules of the game of international diplomacy, as well as real politics, mean that we are, including those people who are tired of hearing about it, are tired of the reason right now still have to listen and still have to talk if you had some magic bullet that we could give them all you know put some in their water so they shut up about it and leave it alone they'll understand. <laughs> but we don't so we'll have to keep talking and keep sparring and keep looking for ways to get them to save face I supported mm-hmm. the move to the ITJ because I thought that was the ultimate face saving the in now, believers, I think, they have a legitimate and pessimistic fear of going before a because going before any court is a gamble. You can't predetermine the outcome. I don't see it as, as huge a gamble. I don't fear it the way some believers do. But I think it could do face feeling enough for the Guatemalan elite to finally, you know, absolutely drop their claim and basically lower pecan is the business of developing a respective people and country
0: well i think
1: one of the things that we lo- recognize even though we okay we have internationally recognized borders and i've been down so deep down so. i've been to some of those markers you know and i've seen first time i went to the starstool river you know look at you know i mean it, it was a very eye-opening experience but and i saw the kind of um you know, even though we have international, and I talk to the people in the Campesinos that you're saying about, you know, took pictures with them, talk, they laugh and talk with them, and you know, all of it, that one kind of thing. I mean, you know, but you know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, this the adjacency zone that we agreed to in this compromise, you know, where you know, we you know, we're not in the compromise, but the adjacency zone that we agreed to, you know, as part of this confidence building measures, you know, it essentially. And, and I wanna pick my words because I don't want I wanna be fair to the whole look process. Look. But it's,
2: it's essentially uh kind of
1: borders it's made of borders in question at least to a lot of people. and especially when you go down there down south and you see it first time in Halakte, in Dolores and those places.
2: Well, uh Hubert uh, I, I, I I could argue and I won't, but I'm not saying it for a record that borders are been in question. I was born down South. I grew up in I grew up on same time border here right? and I like what a lot of what from Europe is the border, the border is not a marked line on the map you know I, I, it, it really is between countries. We are starting to for the most part absorb what the Guatemalan and regard as well it's a population. The problem here for them and, and now for us is that Guatemala has the fastest growing population in this region. Guatemala's population, a country census population, has doubled just within the last 20, 25 years. Their official population estimate is 14 million, with CIA estimate is 17 million. <laughs> so, they are like a population time like, bomb that's picking up beyond our borders. I, I am not sure what we'll do, Sir solution. Are we going to mark out a no-man's land between the two countries and shoot anybody who dare Are we going to try and build fences like between Mexico and the United States that are electrified and so high you can't climb? Are we going to build our own, what was it, the magnet line or whatever it is? I, I, I really don't know. I don't agree with the government strategy of kind of benign neglect. I would rather see us much more engaged. It is time our people on the ground, so to speak, went well, to so their people on the ground, and started to propagandize with their people, it is time we, we started to make our case directly to the Guatemalan teachers. You know, and we cannot continue with this open door policy because that's our, our non-immigration policy. That's what it is, we are an open door policy. We have to make up our mind. We have to decide on what is best for us. And we are going to have to carry it out. That's
1: an excellent point, then. I want to touch on that because... This, this, as you put it, the open-door policy. Because, you know, okay, let's say even we go to a referendum. You know, we already tried one. It didn't fail. <laughs> We're trying another one, and I think that will fail, too. Because I don't think, you know, at least not within my lifetime, that, you know, I would continue to oppose it. But the point I'm making is that we already, you know, like you said, when you go down to the borders, when it's already overran. And, if you know, I mean, I saw the blatant any, anything goes... Um, um down there. And the least you could do I'm not saying that you should, you know, adopt this sideline, you know, kick people, you know, shoot them on fight or anything like that, but the least you could do if you, you know, if you value the integrity of your country, the least you could do even though we, they, 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 they you know, they don't believe that that beliefs, you know, should have our border, the least we could do is try to enforce the integrity of our you know, for borders, I mean, and by getting the BDF in the bush. I'm not saying that the BDF will go down there, you know, with, you know, with a use of force possible shoot on site, but it's common sense. It's, it's reasonable to ask a country to enforce your known borders.
2: Would, would it you is, agree? It is, it is your sacred duty as an elected official. You, 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 are, you, you swore that you're going to protect believers in integrity. Neglecting doing that In my in my view, is nothing short of treason, traitors. In fact, for us not to assert our authority is debilitating and dangerous, and ultimately, I mean, it's treason. In my view, and I I, and I and I stand by that. I don't take it back. I I I, I, I'm not going to diplomatically say, well, maybe we don't have the resources. It is a must. It is a must because it is this used. At some point, we are going to find ourselves standing on a beach and hoping to catch the last boat leaving.
3: I, I think
1: we could agree on that particular thing. There, I mean, you know, as far as the ICJ as a body, you know, like you know, I mean, much has been said about it. We, you know, we just saw this recent, um, this recent, um, you know, the Chile the Chile and um, Peru um ruling that they came down with and um there was a, there was a woman we only have like about four minutes left, so let's let i mean you know she was saying specifically this woman um uh, was a uh i think she's a Guatemalan scholar and her position was um uh she was she was trying to you know um what is what is sovereignty uh, in light of form um, Specifically, she was asking the question: Would Belize want to become Guatemalan? What is sovereignty? You know, what is sovereignty you know, in, you know, in her mind? And is Belize ours? You know, Carolina Escobar starting Guatemala. This is what she was essentially asking in an article in Prince Prinsa Um In light of that, what do you think is uh, that? Are those some pertinent questions for as and we should ask ourselves too? Given the you know, the, the, like you said, this open border policy, open border policy that we have with, with our neighbor.
2: I, I I read the article and first of all I was delighted to see her question because Even she was questioning the, the the value and the work of the claim and she recognized that it would be a it be a hard road for them to go to the IT with any dated situations of, of anything in light of that ruling. You read the article to actually get a bit of good sensation. You know. Secondly, even outside of the Guatemalan question we have to question ourselves in regard to our nationalism and our patriotism as a, as a nation and as people belonging to a nation i think we are, we are far too loose with our ideas of nationalism and patriotism you know that are, you know for me these are issues that go beyond slavery once a year during the September celebration we are either believe believer or you are not. And if you are a believer, you are a believer on your peace and every fiber, every cell of your being. Regardless of where you are, who you are, otherwise. This is like the modern question and the diaspora issues, etc. Religion to poor or attitude to it. In regards not to...
1: That's But on. we only have... <laughs> About one minute, 11 seconds. I, I want you to just, you know, wrap it up from our listeners, you know, in, in about 25 seconds or less, uh, you know, give us a parting shot. You
2: well, know, something more impossible? <laughs> anyway, no, I just want to say thanks to everybody who listened in, right? It would be impossible to recap all you have spoken about. I just want to thank you for the opportunity to work. And I'm sure that this is a dialogue and a conversation and discussion that we will continue because continuing is the most.
1: All right, um, Glenn, I want to thank you too, and you know that was very gracious of you to spend two hours of a nice, beautiful morning in Belize to 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 help us with the popular education here in the diaspora, and you know, um, um, again, this is only the beginning. I'm sure you and I will continue to dialogue, and I'm sure that we will have to continue with this discussion in the popular education for people. I want to thank Glenn Tillett, and I want to tell everyone out there. Uh, Do the right thing. Have a blessed Saturday. God bless.